Hello, and welcome to Great Souls, great stories presented by The Seagull Project. I'm your host, Gavin Reeb, and we've selected a spring box of stories to be delivered directly to your device wherever you may be living across the universe. These stories were curated to embrace a season of renewal by examining imagination, growth, and community. The name Springbox comes from a method used to collect clean water from natural springs, and that marriage of human ingenuity with the magic of nature seemed a fine pairing. Plus, I keep having this image of a bunch of springtime cartoon animals boxing it out in a sunlit field, and somehow that metaphor still seems to fit. We've got three stories for you this episode, with one being told two ways. First, Anton Chekhov's comedic tragedy of desire, Oysters, as read by Ayo Tishinde, followed by O. Henry's characteristic tale of love lost in Springtime a la carte, as read by David Quicksall. And finally, Gabriel Garcia Marquez's tale of transformation, the handsomest drowned man in the world, as read in the original Spanish and then in English by Sophie Franco. If you're looking for a timestamp of a specific story so you can get right to them, then you can find those in the description of this podcast. As always, these stories are read by professional artists who are all paid for their work and then released free of charge by The Seagull Project. That means we are only able to do that thanks to your support. And if you like the episode, we'd appreciate it if you'd make a donation or send a tip using the link where you found this episode or head to our website www.theseagullproject.org. Also, be sure to give this podcast a follow, like the episode, and share it with all your friends. First up, an ironic tale of imagination through the eyes of a young Russian. Oysters, by Anton Chekhov. As read by Ayo Tushinde. I need no great effort of memory to recall in every detail the rainy autumn evening when I stood with my father in one of the more frequented streets of Moscow and felt that I was gradually being overcome by a strange illness. I had no pain at all, but my legs were giving way under me. The words stuck in my throat. My head slipped weakly on one side. It seemed as though in a moment I must fall down and lose consciousness. If I had been taken into a hospital at that minute, the doctors would have had to write over my bed the Latin word for hunger, fames, a disease which is not in the manuals of medicine. Beside me on the pavement stood my father in a shabby summer overcoat and a serge cap from which a bit of white wadding was sticking out. On his feet he had big, heavy galoshes. Afraid, vain man, that people would see that his feet were bare under the galoshes, he had drawn the tops of some old boots up round the calves of his legs. This poor, foolish, queer creature, whom I loved the more warmly, the more ragged and dirty his smart summer overcoat became, had come to Moscow five months before to look for a job as a copying clerk. For those five months he had been trudging about Moscow, looking for work, and it was only on that day that he had brought himself to go into the street to beg for alms. Before us was a big house of three stories, adorned with a blue signboard with the word restaurant on it. My head was drooping feebly backwards and to one side, and I could not help looking upwards at the lighted windows of the restaurant. Human figures were flitting about at the windows. I could see the right side of the orchestrion, two oleographs, hanging lamps. Huh. Staring into one window, I saw a patch of white. The patch was motionless, and its rectangular outline stood out sharply against the dark brown background. I looked intently and made out of the patch a white placard on the wall. Something was written on it, but what it was I could not see. For half an hour I kept my eyes on the placard. Its white attracted my eyes and, as it were, hypnotized my brain. 
I tried to read it, but my efforts were in vain. At last the strange disease got the upper hand. The rumble of the carriages began to seem like thunder. In the stench of the street, I distinguished a thousand smells. The restaurant lights and the lamps dazzled my eyes like lightning. My five senses were overstrained and sensitive beyond the normal. I began to see what I had not seen before. Oh, yeast hairs. I made out on the placard. A strange word. I had lived in the world eight years and three months, but had never come across that word. What did it mean? Surely it was not the name of the restaurant keeper. But signboards with names on them always hang outside, not on the walls indoors. Papa, what does oysters mean? I asked in a husky voice, making an effort to turn my face towards my father. My father did not hear. He was keeping a watch on the movements of the crowd and following every passerby with his eyes. From his eyes, I saw that he wanted to say something to the passerby, but the fatal word hung like a heavy weight on his trembling lips and could not be flung off. He even took a step after one passerby and touched him on the sleeve, but when he turned round, he said, I beg your pardon. He was overcome with confusion and staggered back. Papa, what those oysters mean? I repeated. Uh, It is an animal. That it lives in the sea. I instantly pictured to myself this unknown marine animal. I thought it must be something midway between a fish and a crab. As it was from the sea, they made of it, of course, a very nice hot fish soup with savory pepper and laurel leaves. Or broth with vinegar and fricassee of fish and cabbage. Or crayfish sauce. Or served it cold with horseradish. I vividly imagined it being brought from the market. Quickly cleaned. Quickly put in the pot. Quickly, quickly, for everyone was hungry. Oh, oh. Oh, awfully hungry. Oh, from the kitchen rose the smell of hot fish and crayfish soup. I felt that this smell was tickling my palate and nostrils and that it was gradually taking possession of my whole body. The restaurant, my father, the white placard, my sleeves were all smelling of it, smelling so strongly that I began to chew. I moved my jaws and swallowed as though I really had a piece of this marine animal in my mouth. My legs gave way from the blissful sensation I was feeling, and I clutched at my father's arm to keep myself from falling and leant against his wet summer overcoat. My father was trembling and shivering. He was cold. Baba, are oysters a Lenten dish? I asked. Mm, mm, they are eaten alive said my father. They are in shells, like uh, tortoises, but in two halves. The delicious smell instantly stopped affecting me, and the illusion vanished. Oh, now I understood it all. How nasty, I whispered. How nasty. So that's what oysters meant. I imagined myself a creature like a frog. A frog sitting in a shell, peeping out from it with its big, glittering eyes and moving its revolting jaws. I imagined this creature in a shell with claws, glittering eyes, and a slimy skin being brought from the market. (gasps) The children would all hide while the cook, frowning with an air of disgust, would 
take the creature by its claw, put it on a plate, and carry it into the dining room, the grown-ups would take it and eat it. Eat it alive with its eyes, its teeth, its legs. While it squeaked and tried to bite their lips. I frowned, but... But why did my teeth move as though I were munching? The creature was loathsome, disgusting, terrible. But I ate it, ate it greedily, afraid of distinguishing its taste or smell. And as soon as I had eaten one, I saw the glittering eyes of a second, a third. I ate them, too. At last, I ate the table napkin, the plate, my father's galoshes, the white placard. I ate everything that caught my eye because I felt that nothing but eating would take away my illness. The oysters had a terrible look in their eyes and were loathsome. I shuddered at the thought of them, but I wanted to eat. To eat! Oysters! Give me some oysters! was the cry that broke from me, and I stretched out my hand. Help us, gentlemen! I heard at that moment my father said in a hollow, shaking voice. I am ashamed to ask, but my God, I can bear no more! Oysters! I cried pulling my father by the skirts of his coat. You mean to say that you eat oysters? A <laughs> little chap like you! <laughs> I heard laughter close to me. Two gentlemen in top hats were standing before us, looking into my face and laughing. Hey, uh, you really eat oysters, youngster? <laughs> That's interesting. How do you eat them? Oh, I remember a strong hand dragged me into the lighted restaurant. A minute later, there was a crowd round me, watching with curiosity and amusement. I sat at a table and ate something slimy, salt, with the flavor of dampness and moldiness. But I ate greedily, without chewing, without looking, and trying to discover what I was eating. I fancied that if I opened my eyes, I should see glittering eyes, claws, and sharp teeth. All at once, I began biting something hard. There was a sound of a scrunching. He's eating the shells! (laughs) Laughed the crowd. Oh, little silly, do you suppose you can eat that? (laughs) After that, I remember a terrible thirst. I was lying in my bed and I could not sleep for heartburn and the strange taste in my parched mouth. My father was walking up and down, gesticulating with his hands. I believe I've caught a cold, he was muttering. The feeling in my head is as though someone were sitting on it. Perhaps it is because I have not (coughs) eaten anything today. I really am a queer, stupid creature. I saw those men pay ten rubles for the oysters. Why didn't I go up to them and ask them just to lend me something? They would have, they would have given something. Towards morning, I fell asleep and dreamt of a frog sitting in a shell, moving its eyes. At midday, I was awakened by thirst and looked for my father. He was still walking up and down and gesticulating. Anyone familiar with the Seagull Project knows that we are Chekhov devotees, and this story is a great example why. Here, a 22-year-old Chekhov, still in medical school and trying to raise money for his family, much like the characters he creates, is able to balance the sweet and highly thoughts of a young child with a subversive story that carries the piece's true teeth. Once again, Chekhov manages to speak to more truth through a veiled comedy than someone who goes right for the heartstrings. Another example why this 19th century Russian is considered one of the forefathers of the short story form and why his work inspired the creation of our Great Souls podcast. 
If you want more Chekhov, you can head back to our first episode, Chekhov's Fools, for his classic What Goes Around Comes Around comedy, a work of art, as read by Peter Crook. And in the ultimate of ironic fates, 20 years after writing this story, having passed away in Germany, Chekhov's body was taken back to Moscow in a freight car labeled for oysters only. I think he would have gotten a laugh out of that one. Next up, we have another returning writer, one whom we visited just last December in our Gifts of the Season podcast for his holiday classic, Gifts of the Magi. O. Henry is one of the most prolific short story writers in history, so I guess we are making up a bit of time by featuring him in back-to-back Great Souls podcasts. But hey, this story was tough to pass up. This 1906 tale is all flowers, food, and typewriters. Oh, and the great longing of lost love that is inevitable with the arrival of spring. At least for the story's lead. Delivered with O. Henry's classic wit and dedication to form, we are happy to present O. Henry's Springtime a la carte, as read by David Quicksall. It was a day in March. Never, never begin a story this way when you write one. No opening could possibly be worse. It is unimaginative, flat, dry, and likely to consist of mere wind. But in this instance, it is allowable. For the following paragraph, which should have inaugurated the narrative, is too wildly extravagant and preposterous to be flaunted in the face of the reader without preparation. Sarah was crying over her bill of fare. Think of a New York girl shedding tears on the menu card. To account for this, you will be allowed to guess that the lobsters were all out, or that she had sworn ice cream off during Lent or that she had ordered onions, or that she had just come from a matinee, and then all these theories being wrong, you will please let the story proceed. The gentleman who announced that the world was an oyster, which he with his sword would open, made a larger hit than he deserved. It is not difficult to open an oyster with a sword, but did you ever notice anyone try to open the terrestrial bivalve with a typewriter? Like to wait for a dozen raw opened that way? Sarah had managed to pry apart the shells with her unhandy weapon far enough to nibble a wee bit at the cold and clammy world within. She knew no more shorthand than if she had been a graduate in stenography just let slip upon the world by a business college. So, not being able to stenog, she could not enter that bright galaxy of office talent. She was a freelance typewriter, and canvassed for odd jobs of copying. The most brilliant and crowning feat of Sarah's battle with the world was the deal she made with Schulenberg's home restaurant. The restaurant was next door to the old red brick in which she ballroomed. One evening, after dinner at Schulenberg's 40-cent five-course table d'hote, Sarah took away with her the bill of fare. It was written in an almost unreadable script, neither English nor German and so arranged that if you were not careful, you began with a toothpick and rice pudding and ended with soup and the day of the week. The next day, Sarah showed Schulenberg a neat card on which the menu was beautifully typewritten, with the viands temptingly marshaled under their right and proper heads from hors d'oeuvre to not responsible for overcoats and umbrellas. Schulenberg became a naturalized citizen on the spot, Before Sarah left him, she had him willingly committed to an agreement. She was to furnish typewritten bills of fare for the 21 tables in the restaurant, a new bill for each day's dinner, and new ones for breakfast and lunch as often as changes occurred in the food or as neatness required. In return for this, Schulenberg was to send three meals per diem to Sarah's hall room by a waiter, an obsequious one if possible, and furnish her each afternoon with a pencil draft of what fate had in store for Schulenberg's customers on the morrow. Mutual satisfaction resulted from the agreement. Schulenberg's patrons now knew what the food they ate was called, even if its nature sometimes puzzled them. And Sarah had food during a cold, dull winter, which was the main thing with her. And then the almanac lied and said 
that spring had come. Spring comes when it comes. The frozen snows of January still lay like adamant in the crosstown streets. The hand organs still played in the good old summertime with their December vivacity and expression. Men began to make 30-day notes to buy Easter dresses. Janitors shut off the steam. And when these things happen, one may know that the city is still in the clutches of winter. One afternoon, Sarah shivered in her elegant hall bedroom. She had no work to do except Schulenberg's menu cards. Sarah sat in her squeaky willow rocker and looked out the window. The calendar on the wall kept crying to her. Springtime is here, Sarah. Springtime is here, I tell ya. Look at me, Sarah. My figures show it. You've got a neat figure yourself, Sarah. A nice springtime figure. Why do you look out the window so sadly? Sarah's room was at the back of the house. Looking out the window, she could see the windowless rear brick wall of the box factory on the next street. But the wall was clearest crystal, and Sarah was looking down a grassy lane shaded with cherry trees and elms and bordered with raspberry bushes and Cherokee roses. On the previous summer, Sarah had gone into the country and loved a farmer. In writing your story, never hark back thus. It is bad art and cripples interest. Let it march, march. Sarah stayed two weeks at Sunnybrook Farm. There she learned to love old farmer Franklin's son, Walter. Farmers have been loved and wedded and turned out to grass in less time, but young Walter Franklin was a modern agriculturalist. He had a telephone in his cowhouse, and he could figure up exactly what effect next year's Canada wheat crop would have on potatoes planted in the dark of the moon. It was in this shaded and raspberry lane that Walter had wooed and won her, and together they had sat and woven a crown of dandelions for her hair. He had immoderately praised the effect of the yellow blossoms against her brown tresses, and she had left the chaplet there and walked back to the house, swinging her straw sailor in her hands. They were to marry in the spring, at the first sign of spring, Walter said, and Sarah came back to the city to pound her typewriter. A knock at the door dispelled Sarah's visions of that happy day. A waiter had brought the rough pencil draft of the home restaurant's next-day fare in old Schulenberg's angular hand. Sarah sat down to her typewriter and slipped a card between the rollers. She was a nimble worker. Generally, in an hour and a half, the 21 menu cards were written and ready. Today, there were more changes on the bill of fare than usual. The soups were lighter. Pork was eliminated from the entrees, figuring only with Russian turnips among the roasts. The gracious spirit of spring pervaded the entire menu. Lamb, that lately capered on the greening hillsides, was becoming exploited with the sauce that commemorated its gambols. The song of the oyster, though not silenced, was diminuendo con amore. The frying pan seemed to be held inactive behind the beneficent bars of the broiler. The pie list swelled. The richer puddings had vanished. The sausage, with his drapery wrapped about him, barely lingered in a pleasant thanatopsis with the buckwheats and the sweet but doomed maple. Sarah's fingers danced on through the courses. She worked, giving each item its position according to its length with an accurate eye. Just above the desserts came the list of vegetables, carrots and peas, asparagus on toast, the perennial tomatoes and corn and succotash, lima beans, cabbage, and then Sarah was crying over her bill of fare. Tears from the depths of some divine despair rose in her heart and gathered to her eyes. Down went her head on the little typewriter stand, and the keyboard rattled a dry accompaniment to her moist sobs. 
for she had received no letter from Walter in two weeks, and the next item on the bill of fare was dandelions. Dandelions with some kind of egg. But bother the egg! Dandelions, with whose golden blooms Walter had crowned her his queen of love and future bride. Dandelions, the harbingers of the spring, her sorrow's crown of sorrow, reminder of her happiest days. Madam, I dare you to smile until you suffer this test. Let the Marischal Niel roses that Percy brought you on the night you gave him your heart be served as a salad with French dressing before your eyes at a Schulenburg table d'hote. Had Juliet so seen her love tokens dishonored, the sooner would she have sought the lethean herbs of the good apothecary. But what a witch is spring! Into the great cold city of stone and iron, a message had to be sent. There was none to convey it but the little hardy courier of the fields with his rough green coat and modest air. Flowered, he will assist at love-making, wreathed in my lady's nut-brown hair. Young and callow and unblossomed, he goes into the boiling pot and delivers the word of his sovereign mistress. By and by, Sarah forced back her tears. The cards must be written. But still, in a faint golden glow from her dandelonian dream, she fingered the typewriter keys absently for a little while, with her mind and heart in the meadow lane with her young farmer. But soon she came swiftly back to the rock-bound lanes of Manhattan, and the typewriter began to rattle and jump like a strike-breaker's motor car. At six o'clock the waiter brought her dinner and carried away the typewritten bill of fare. When Sarah ate, she set aside, with a sigh, the dish of dandelions with its crowning ovarious accompaniment. As this dark mass had been transformed from a bright and love-endorsed flower to be an ignominious vegetable, so had her summer hopes wilted and perished. Love may, as Shakespeare said, feed on itself, but Sarah could not bring herself to eat the dandelions that had graced, as ornaments, the first spiritual banquet of her heart's true affection. At seven-thirty, the couple in the next room began to quarrel. The man in the room above sought for A on his flute. The gas went a little lower. Three coal wagons started to unload, the only sound of which the phonograph is jealous. Cats on the back fences slowly retreated toward Muckton. By these signs, Sarah knew that it was time for her to read. She got out The Cloister and the Hearth, the best non-selling book of the month, settled her feet on her trunk, and began to wander with Gerard. The front doorbell rang. The landlady answered it. Sarah left Gerard and listened. Oh, yes, you would just as she did. And then a strong voice was heard in the hall below, and Sarah jumped for her door, leaving the book on the floor. You have guessed it. She reached the top of the stairs just as her farmer came up, three at a jump, and reaped and garnered her with nothing left for the gleaners. Why haven't you written? Oh, why? cried Sarah. New York is a pretty large town, said Walter Franklin. I came in a week ago to your old address. I found that you went away on a Thursday. That consoled some. It eliminated the possible Friday bad luck, but it didn't prevent my hunting for you with police and otherwise ever since. I wrote, said Sarah vehemently. Never got it. Then how did you find me? The young farmer smiled a springtime smile. I dropped into that home restaurant next door this evening, said he. I don't care who knows it. I like a dish of some kind of greens at this time of year. I ran my eye down that nice typewritten bill of fare looking for something in that line. When I got below cabbage, I turned my chair over and hollered for the proprietor. He told me where you lived. I remember, sighed Sarah happily. That was dandelions below cabbage. I'd know that cranky capital W way above the line that your typewriter makes anywhere in the world, said Franklin. Why, 
There's no W in dandelions, said Sarah in surprise. The young man drew the bill of fare from his pocket and pointed to a line. Sarah recognized the first card she had typewritten that afternoon. There was still the rayed splotch in the upper right-hand corner where a tear had fallen. But over the spot where one should have read the name of the meadow plant, the clinging memory of their golden blossoms had allowed her fingers to strike strange keys. Between the red cabbage and the stuffed green peppers was the item, Dearest Walter, with hard-boiled egg. Gabriel Garcia Marquez wrote short stories, novels, novellas, screenplays, and nonfiction works from the 1940s until just before his death a few years ago in 2014. He won the Neustadt International Prize for Literature in 1972 and the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1982. His 1967 novel, 100 Years of Solitude, is rightly considered an international masterpiece, but his numerous other works share the richness of that novel. For the first eight years of Gabriel Garcia Marquez's life, he was raised in a small northern village in Colombia where his grandmother would regale him with stories about Colombian history and myth, cultivating his love of folk tales and helping to develop his magical realist style. Garcia Marquez went on to become a journalist, but wrote short stories on the side. His first novella, La Ojarasca, was published in 1955 and translated into English in 1972 as the title piece in Leaf Storm and Other Stories, which included the translation of this story. Garcia Marquez's journey into the fantastic with the handsomest drowned man in the world unsurprisingly leads to a whole host of interpretations, but for me, I see a story about dynamic change through love and empathy. I think it's the story I need right now and this one has proved to hit the spot. Garcia Marquez was very specific about the way he wanted his work to sound, both in English and Spanish, and such I felt it would be a waste to include this story without the incredible poetic buoyancy of its original Spanish language. First, we will present the Spanish language version, and then the English. If you're interested in the Spanish, then listen on. If you want to jump straight to the English version, you can skip to minute 51. Enjoy The Handsomest Drowned Man in the World by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, as read by Sophie Franco. Los primeros niños que vieron el promontorio oscuro y sigiloso que se acercaba por el mar se hicieron la ilusión de que era un barco enemigo. Después vieron que no llevaba banderas ni arboladura y pensaron que fuera una ballena. Pero cuando quedó varado en la playa, le quitaron los matorrales de sargazos, los filamentos de medusas y los restos de cardúmenes y naufragios que llevaba encima. Y solo entonces descubrieron que era un ahogado. Habían jugado con él toda la tarde, enterrándolo y desenterrándolo en la arena, cuando alguien los vio por casualidad y dio la voz de alarma en el pueblo. Los hombres que lo cargaron hasta la casa más próxima notaron que pesaba más que todos los muertos conocidos, casi tanto como un caballo, y se dijeron que tal vez había estado demasiado tiempo a la deriva y el agua se le había metido dentro de los huesos. Cuando lo tendieron en el suelo, vieron que había sido mucho más grande que todos los hombres, pues apenas sí cabía en la casa, pero pensaron que tal vez la facultad de seguir creciendo después de la muerte estaba en la naturaleza de ciertos ahogados. Tenía el olor del mar, y solo la forma permitía suponer que era el cadáver de un ser humano porque su piel estaba revestida de una coraza de rémora y de lodo. No tuvieron que limpiarle la cara para saber que era un muerto ajeno. El pueblo tenía apenas unas 20 casas de tablas, con patios de piedra sin flores, desperdigadas en el extremo de un cabo desértico. La tierra era tan escasa 
que las madres andaban siempre con el temor de que el viento se llevara a los niños y a los pocos muertos que les iban causando los años, tenían que tirarlos en los acantilados. Pero el mar era manso y pródigo, y todos los hombres cabían en siete botes. Así que cuando encontraron el ahogado, les bastó con mirarse los unos a los otros para darse cuenta de que estaban completos. Aquella noche no salieron a trabajar en el mar. Mientras los hombres averiguaban si no faltaba alguien en los pueblos vecinos, las mujeres se quedaron cuidando al ahogado. Le quitaron el lodo con tapones de esparto, le desenredaron del cabello los abrujos submarinos y le rasparon la rémora con fierros de desescamar pescados. A medida que lo hacían, notaron que su vegetación era de océanos remotos y de aguas profundas, y que sus ropas estaban en piltrafas, como si hubieran navegado por entre laberintos de corales. Notaron también que sobrellevaba la muerte con altivez, pues no tenía el semblante solitario de los otros ahogados del mar, ni tampoco la catadura sórdida y menesterosa de los ahogados fluviales. Pero solamente cuando acabaron de limpiarlo, tuvieron conciencia de la clase de hombre que era, y entonces se quedaron sin aliento. No solo era el más alto, el más fuerte, el más viril y el mejor armado que habían visto jamás, sino que todavía cuando lo estaban viendo no les cabía en la imaginación. No encontraron en el pueblo una cama bastante grande para atenderlo, ni una mesa bastante sólida para velarlo. No le vinieron los pantalones de fiesta de los hombres más altos, ni las camisas dominicales de los más corpulentos, ni los zapatos del mejor plantado. Fascinadas por su desproporción y su hermosura, las mujeres decidieron entonces hacerle unos pantalones con un buen pedazo de vela cangreja y una camisa de bramante de novia para que pudiera continuar su muerte con dignidad. Mientras cosían sentadas en círculo, contemplando el cadáver entre puntada y puntada, les parecía que el viento no había sido nunca tan tenaz, ni el Caribe había estado nunca tan ansioso como aquella noche, y suponían que esos cambios tenían algo que ver con el muerto. Pensaban que si aquel hombre magnífico hubiera vivido en el pueblo, su casa habría tenido puertas más anchas, el techo más alto y el piso más firme, y el bastidor de su cama habría sido de cuadernas maestras con pernos de hierro, y su mujer habría sido la más feliz. Pensaban que habría tenido tanta autoridad que hubiera sacado los peces del mar con solo llamarlos por sus nombres, y habría puesto tanto empeño en el trabajo que hubiera hecho brotar manantiales entre las piedras más áridas y hubiera podido sembrar flores en los acantilados. Lo compararon en secreto con sus propios hombres, pensando que no serían capaces de hacer en toda una vida lo que aquel era capaz de hacer en una noche, y terminaron por repudiarlos en el fondo de sus corazones como los seres más escuálidos y mezquinos de la tierra. Andaban extraviadas por esos dédalos de fantasía cuando la más vieja de las mujeres que por ser la más vieja había contemplado al ahogado con menos pasión que compasión, suspiró. Tiene cara de llamarse Esteban. Era verdad. A la mayoría le bastó con mirarlo otra vez para comprender que no podía tener otro nombre. Las más porfiadas, que eran las más jóvenes, se mantuvieron con la ilusión de que al ponerle la ropa, tendido entre flores y con unos zapatos de charol, pudiera llamarse Lautaro. Pero fue una ilusión vana. El lienzo resultó escaso. Los pantalones mal cortados y peor cosidos le quedaron estrechos. 
y las fuerzas ocultas de su corazón hacían saltar los botones en la camisa. Después de la medianoche, se adelgazaron los silbidos del viento y el mar cayó en el sopor del miércoles. El silencio acabó con las últimas dudas. Era Esteban. Las mujeres que lo habían vestido, las que lo habían peinado, las que le habían cortado las uñas y raspado la barba, no pudieron reprimir un estremecimiento de compasión cuando tuvieron que resignarse a dejarlo tirado por los suelos. Fue entonces cuando comprendieron cuánto debió haber sido de infeliz con aquel cuerpo descomunal, si hasta después de muerto le estorbaba. Lo vieron condenado en vida a pasar de medio lado por las puertas, a descalabrarse con los travesaños, a permanecer de pie en las visitas sin saber qué hacer con sus tiernas y rosadas manos de buey de mar, mientras la dueña de la casa buscaba la silla más resistente y le suplicaba muerta de miedo, «Siéntese aquí, Esteban, hágame el favor». Y él, recostado contra las paredes, sonriendo, «No se preocupe, señora, así estoy bien». Con los talones en carne viva y las espaldas escaldadas de tanto repetir lo mismo en todas las visitas. «No se preocupe, señora, así estoy bien». Solo para no pasar por la vergüenza de desbaratar la silla, y acaso sin haber sabido nunca que quienes le decían no te vayas, Esteban, espérate siquiera hasta que hierva el café. Eran los mismos que después susurraban. Ya se fue el bobo grande, qué bueno, ya se fue el tonto hermoso. Esto pensaban las mujeres frente al cadáver un poco antes del amanecer. Más tarde, cuando le taparon la cara con un pañuelo para que no le molestara la luz, lo vieron tan muerto para siempre tan indefenso, tan parecido a sus hombres, que se les abrieron las primeras grietas de lágrimas en el corazón. Fue una de las más jóvenes la que empezó a sollozar. Las otras, alentándose entre sí, pasaron de los suspiros a los lamentos, y mientras más sollozaban, más deseos sentían de llorar, porque el ahogado se les iba volviendo cada vez más Esteban hasta que lo lloraron tanto que fue el hombre más desvalido de la tierra, el más manso y el más servicial, el pobre Esteban. Así que cuando los hombres volvieron con la noticia de que el ahogado no era tampoco de los pueblos vecinos, ellas sintieron un vacío de júbilo entre las lágrimas. «¡Bendito sea Dios!» suspiraron. «¡Es nuestro!» Los hombres creyeron que aquellos aspavientos no eran más que frivolidades de mujer. Cansados de las tortuosas averiguaciones de la noche, lo único que querían era quitarse de una vez el estorbo del intruso antes de que prendía el sol bravo de aquel día árido y sin viento. Improvisaron unas angarías con restos de trinquetes y botavaras y las amarraron con carlingas de altura para que resistieran el peso del cuerpo hasta los acantilados. Quisieron encadenarle a los tobillos una ancla de buque mercante para que fondeara sin tropiezos en los mares más profundos, donde los peces son ciegos y los buzos se mueren de nostalgia de manera que las malas corrientes no fueran a devolverlo a la orilla, como había sucedido con otros cuerpos. Pero mientras más se apresuraban, más cosas se les ocurrían a las mujeres para perder el tiempo. Andaban como gallinas asustadas picoteando amuletos de mar en los arcones, unas estorbando aquí porque querían ponerle al ahogado los escapularios del buen viento, otras estorbando allá para abrocharle una pulsera de orientación. Y al cabo de tanto, quítate de ahí, mujer. Ponte donde no estorbes. Mira que casi me haces caer sobre el difunto. A los hombres se les subieron al hígado las suspicacias y empezaron a rezongar que con qué objeto tanta ferretería de altar mayor para un forastero. 
si por muchos estoperoles y calderatas que llevara encima, se lo iban a masticar los tiburones, pero ellas seguían tripotando sus reliquias de pacotilla, llevando y trayendo, tropezando, mientras se les iba en suspiros lo que no se les iba en lágrimas. Así que los hombres terminaron por despotricar que, de cuando acá semejante alboroto por un muerto al garete, un ahogado de nadie, un fiambre de mierda. Una de las mujeres, mortificada por tanta idolencia, le quitó entonces al cadáver el pañuelo de la cara, y también los hombres se quedaron sin aliento. Era Esteban. No hubo que repetirlo para que lo reconocieran. Si les hubieran dicho Sir Walter Raleigh, quizás hasta ellos se habrían impresionado con su acento de gringo, con su guacamaya en el hombro, con su arcabuz de matar caníbales. Pero Esteban solamente podía ser uno en el mundo, y allí estaba tirado como un sábalo, sin botines, con unos pantalones de siete mesino y esas uñas rocallosas que solo podían cortarse a cuchillo. Bastó con que le quitaran el pañuelo de la cara para darse cuenta de que estaba avergonzado, de que no tenía la culpa de ser tan grande, ni tan pesado, ni tan hermoso, y si hubiera sabido que aquello iba a suceder, habría buscado un lugar más discreto para ahogarse. En serio, me hubiera amarrado yo mismo una áncora de galeón en el cuello y hubiera trastabillado como quien no quiere la cosa por los acantilados para no andar ahora estorbando con este muerto de miércoles, como ustedes dicen, para no molestar a nadie con esta porquería de fiambre que no tiene nada que ver conmigo. Había tanta verdad en su modo de estar que hasta los hombres más suspicaces, los que sentían amargas las minuciosas noches del mar, temiendo que sus mujeres se cansarán de soñar con ellos para soñar con los ahogados, hasta ellos, y otros más duros, se estremecieron en los tuétanos con la sinceridad de Esteban. Fue así como le hicieron los funerales más espléndidos que podían concebirse para un ahogado espósito. Algunas mujeres que habían ido a buscar flores en los pueblos vecinos regresaron con otras que no creían lo que les contaban. Y éstas se fueron por más flores cuando vieron al muerto y llevaron más y más hasta que hubo tantas flores y tanta gente que apenas sí se podía caminar. A última hora les dolió devolverlo huérfano a las aguas y le eligieron un padre y una madre entre los mejores, y otros se le hicieron hermanos, tíos y primos, así que a través de él, todos los habitantes del pueblo terminaron por ser parientes entre sí. Algunos marineros que oyeron el llanto a la distancia perdieron la certeza del rumbo, y se supo de uno que se hizo amarrar al palo mayor recordando antiguas fábulas de sirenas. Mientras se disputaban el privilegio de llevarlo en los hombres por la pendiente escarpada de los acantilados, hombres y mujeres tuvieron conciencia por primera vez de la desolación de sus calles, la aridez de sus patios, la estrechez de sus sueños, frente al esplendor y la hermosura de su ahogado. Lo soltaron sin ancla para que volviera si quería, y cuando lo quisiera, y todos retuvieron el aliento durante la fracción de siglos que demoró la caída del cuerpo hasta el abismo. No tuvieron necesidad de mirarse los unos a los otros para darse cuenta de que ya no estaban completos, ni volverían a estarlo jamás. Pero también sabían que todo sería diferente desde entonces, que sus casas iban a tener las puertas más anchas los techos más altos, los pisos más firmes, para que el recuerdo de Esteban pudiera andar por todas partes sin tropezar con los travesaños. Y que nadie se atreviera a susurrar en el futuro. Ya murió el bobo grande. ¡Qué lástima! Ya murió el tonto hermoso. 
porque ellos iban a pintar las fachadas de colores alegres para eternizar la memoria de Esteban. Y se iban a romper el espinazo excavando manantiales en las piedras y sembrando flores en los acantilados para que en los amaneceres de los años venturos los pasajeros de los grandes barcos despertaran sofocados por un olor de jardines en alta mar y el capitán tuviera que bajar de su alcázar con uniforme de gala, con su astrolabio, su estrella polar y su ristra de medallas de guerra, y señalando el promontorio de rosas en el horizonte del Caribe, dijera en catorce idiomas, miren allá, donde el viento es ahora tan manso que se queda a dormir debajo de las camas, allá, donde el sol brilla tanto que no saben hacia dónde girar los girasoles. Sí, allá es el pueblo de Esteban. The first children who saw the dark and slinky bulge approaching through the sea let themselves think it was an enemy ship. Then they saw it had no flags or masts, and they thought it was a whale. But when it washed up on the beach, they removed the clumps of seaweed, the jellyfish tentacles, and the remains of fish and flotsam, and only then did they see that it was a drowned man. They had been playing with him all afternoon, burying him in the sand and digging him up again, when someone chanced to see them and spread the alarm in the village. The men who carried him to the nearest house noticed that he weighed more than any dead man they had ever known, almost as much as a horse, and they said to each other that maybe he'd been floating too long and the water had got into his bones. When they laid him on the floor, they said he'd been taller than all other men because there was barely enough room for him in the house. But they thought that maybe the ability to keep on growing after death was part of the nature of certain drowned men. He had the smell of sea about him, and only his shape gave one to suppose that it was the corpse of a human being, because the skin was covered with a crust of mud and scales. They did not even have to clean off his face to know the dead man was a stranger. The village was made up of only 20-odd wooden houses that had stone courtyards with no flowers and which were spread about on the end of a desert-like cape. There was so little land that mothers always went about with the fear that the wind would carry off their children, and the few dead that the years had caused among them had to be thrown off the cliffs. But the sea was calm and bountiful, and all the men fitted into seven boats. So when they found the drowned man, they simply had to look at one another to see they were all there. That night, they did not go out to work at sea. While the men went to find out if anyone was missing in neighboring villages, the women stayed behind to care for the drowned man. They took the mud off with grass swabs, they removed the underwater stones entangled in his hair, and they scraped the crust off with tools used for scaling fish. As they were doing that, they noticed that the vegetation on him came from faraway oceans and deep water, and that his clothes were in tatters, as if he had sailed through labyrinths of coral. They noticed, too, that he bore his death with pride, for he did not have the lonely look of other drowned men who came out of the sea, or that haggard, needy look of men who drowned in rivers. But only when they finished cleaning him off did they become aware of the kind of man he was, and it left them breathless. Not only was he the tallest, strongest, most virile, and best-built man they had ever seen, but even though they were looking at him, there was no room for him in their imagination. They could not find a bed in the village large enough to lay him on, nor was there a table solid enough to use for his wake. The tallest men's holiday pants would not fit him, nor the fattest one's Sunday shirts, nor the shoes of the one with the biggest feet. Fascinated by his huge size and his beauty, 
The women then decided to make him some pants from a large piece of sail and a shirt from some bridal linen so that he could continue through his death with dignity. As they sewed, sitting in a circle and gazing at the corpse between stitches, it seemed to them that the wind had never been so steady nor the sea so restless as on that night, and they supposed that the change had something to do with the dead man. They thought that if that magnificent man had lived in the village, his house would have had the widest doors, the highest ceiling, and the strongest floor. His bedstead would have been made from a midship frame held together by iron bolts, and his wife would have been the happiest woman. They thought that he would have had so much authority that he could have drawn fish out of the sea simply by calling their names, and he would have put so much work into his land that springs would have burst forth from among the rocks so that he would have been able to plant flowers on the cliffs. They secretly compared him to their own men, thinking that for all their lives, theirs were incapable of doing what he could do in one night, and they ended up dismissing them deep in their hearts as the weakest, meanest, and most useless creatures on earth. They were wandering through that maze of fantasy when the oldest woman, who, as the oldest, had looked upon the drowned man with more compassion than passion, sighed. He has the face of someone called Esteban. It was true. Most of them had only to take another look at him to see that he could not have any other name. The more stubborn among them, who were the youngest, still lived for a few hours with the illusion that when they put his clothes on and he lay among the flowers in patent leather shoes, his name might be Lautaro. But it was a vain illusion. There had not been enough canvas. The poorly cut and worse sewn pants were too tight and the hidden strength of his heart popped the buttons on his shirt. After midnight, the whistling of the wind died down and the sea fell into its Wednesday drowsiness. The silence put an end to any last doubts. He was Esteban. The women who had dressed him, who had combed his hair, had cut his nails and shaved him, were unable to hold back a shudder of pity when they had to resign themselves to his being dragged along the ground. It was then that they understood how unhappy he must have been with that huge body, since it bothered him even after death. They could see him in life, condemned to going through doors sideways, cracking his head on crossbeams, remaining on his feet during visits, not knowing what to do with his soft pink sea lion hands, while the lady of the house looked for her most resistant chair and begged him, frightened to death, Sit here, Esteban, please. And he, leaning against the wall, smiling, Don't bother, ma'am. I'm fine where I am. His heels raw and his back roasted from having done the same thing so many times whenever he paid a visit. Don't bother, ma'am. I'm fine where I am. Just to avoid the embarrassment of breaking up the chair and never knowing, perhaps, that the ones who said, Don't go, Esteban. At least wait till the coffee's ready were the ones who later on would whisper, The big boob finally left. How nice. The handsome fool has gone. That was what the women were thinking beside the body a little before dawn. Later, when they covered his face with a handkerchief so that the light would not bother him, he looked so forever dead, so defenseless, so much like their men, that the first furrows of tears opened in their hearts. It was one of the younger ones who began the weeping. The others, coming too, went from sighs to wails, and the more they sobbed, the more they felt like weeping, because the drowned man was becoming all the more Esteban for them, and so they wept so much, for he was the more destitute, most peaceful, and most obliging man on earth, poor Esteban. So, when the men returned with the news that the drowned man was not from the neighboring villages either, the women felt an opening of jubilation in the midst of their tears. Praise the Lord, they sighed. He's ours. The men thought the fuss was only womanish frivolity. 
Fatigued because of the difficult nighttime inquiries, all they wanted was to get rid of the bother of the newcomer once and for all before the sun grew strong on that arid, windless day. They improvised handrails with the remains of foremasts and gaffs, tying it together with rigging so that it would bear the weight of the body until they reached the cliffs. They wanted to tie the anchor from a cargo ship to him so that he would sink easily into the deepest waves, where fish are blind and divers die of nostalgia, and bad currents would not bring him back to shore as had happened with other bodies. But the more they hurried, the more the women thought of ways to waste time. They walked about like startled hens, pecking with sea charms on their breasts, some interfering on one side to put a scapular of the good wind on the drowned man, some on the other side to put a wrist compass on him. And after a great deal of, get away from there, woman, stay out of the way, look, you almost made me fall on top of the dead man. The men began to feel mistrust in their livers and started grumbling about, why so many main altar decorations for a stranger? Because no matter how many nails and holy water jars he had on him, the sharks would chew him all the same. But the women kept piling on their junk relics, running back and forth, stumbling, while they released in size what they did not in tears, so that the men finally exploded with, Since when has there ever been such a fuss over a drifting corpse? A drowned nobody, a piece of cold Wednesday meat! One of the women, mortified by so much lack of care, then removed the handkerchief from the dead man's face. And the men were left breathless too. He was Esteban. It was not necessary to repeat it for them to recognize him. If they had been told Sir Walter Raleigh, even they might have been impressed with his gringo accent, the macaw on his shoulder, his cannibal-killing blunderbuss. But there could only be one Esteban in the world, and there he was, stretched out like a sperm whale, shoeless, wearing the pants of an undersized child, and with those stony nails that had to be cut with a knife. They only had to take the handkerchief off his face to see that he was ashamed, that it was not his fault that he was so big or so heavy or so handsome. And if he had known that this was going to happen, he would have looked for a more discreet place to drown in. Seriously, I would have even tied the anchor of a galleon around my neck and staggered off a cliff like someone who doesn't like things in order not to be upsetting people now with this Wednesday dead body, as you people say, in order not to be bothering anyone with this filthy piece of cold meat that doesn't have anything to do with me. There was so much truth in his manner that even the most mistrustful men the ones who felt the bitterness of endless nights at sea, fearing that their women would tire of dreaming about them and begin to dream of drowned men, even they and others who were harder still, shuddered in the marrow of their bones at Esteban's sincerity. That was how they came to hold the most splendid funeral they could ever conceive of for an abandoned drowned man. Some women who had gone to get flowers in the neighboring villages returned with other women who could not believe what they had been told, and those women went back for more flowers when they saw the dead man, and they brought more and more until there were so many flowers and so many people that it was hard to walk about. At the final moment, it pained them to return him to the waters as an orphan, and they chose a father and mother from among the best people and aunts and uncles and cousins, so that through him, all the inhabitants of the village became kinsmen. Some sailors who heard the weeping from a distance went off course, and people heard of one who had tied himself to the mainmast, remembering ancient fables about sirens. While they fought for the privilege of carrying him on their shoulders along the steep escarpment by the cliffs, men and women became aware for the first time of the desolation of their streets the dryness of their courtyards, the narrowness of their dreams as they faced the splendor and beauty of their drowned man. They let him go without an anchor so that he could come back if he wished and whenever he wished, and they all held their breath for the fraction of centuries the body took to fall into the abyss. They did not need to look at one another to realize that they were no longer all present, that they would never be, but they also knew that everything would be different from then on, 
that their houses would have wider doors, higher ceilings, and stronger floors, so that Esteban's memory could go everywhere without bumping into beams, and so that no one in the future would dare whisper, The big boob finally died. Too bad, the handsome fool has finally died. Because they were going to paint their house fronts gay colors to make Esteban's memory eternal, and they were going to break their backs digging for springs among the stones and planting flowers on the cliffs so that in future years at dawn, the passengers on great liners would awaken, suffocated by the smell of gardens on the high seas, and the captain would have to come down from the bridge in his dress uniform with his astrolabe, his pole star, and his row of war medals, and pointing to the promontory of roses on the horizon, he would say in 14 languages, Look there, where the wind is so peaceful now that it's gone to sleep beneath the beds. Over there, where the sun's so bright that the sunflowers don't know which way to turn. Yes, over there, that's Esteban's village. Thank you for joining the Seagull Project for Great Souls Springboks. A shout out to our fantastic performers, Ayo Tashinde, David Quicksall, and Sophie Franco. And an extra big shout out to you, our patrons, for supporting the sharing of these powerful short stories. Be sure to give a donation if you like what you heard, check out our other podcasts, and keep your ears peeled for more content coming soon. Until then, keep telling stories. Keep telling stories.